And welcome back to another episode of the Congressional Western Caucus Podcast, A Voice for Rural America. I'm Chairman Dan Newhouse. I want to thank you for listening. Today, we've got several guests joining us to talk about a subject that we've breached on the podcast before, and that's the Endangered Species Act. I'm joined by Jordan Smith, who is the Executive Director of the National Endangered Species Act Reform Coalition, or NISARC and Tyson Cade, who is NISARC's legal counsel. Uh, stay tuned for later in the program where we will hear from Representative August Fluger from the great state of Texas, and Stephen Robertson, who is the executive vice president of the Permian Basin Petroleum Association. But until then, welcome Jordan and Tyson, and thanks for being on the program today. Thank you, Chairman Newhouse. Tyson and I welcome the opportunity to join you and appreciate you dedicating some time to this important topic. We are looking forward to the discussion. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's a pleasure to be here. Good, good. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned, today we're focused on the Endangered Species Act. Our previous ESA podcast episode was, was actually our very first episode earlier this year, highlighting the successful recovery efforts and delisting of the gray wolf from the threatened and endangered list. Unfortunately, this time around, we are here to talk about actions that are more cause for concern than celebration. Western Caucus members have long focused on improving the Endangered Species Act and restoring this landmark protection law to its original congressional intent. As a reminder, the ESA, or the Endangered Species Act, was designed to do two things. One, prevent species from going extinct and, and promote endangered and threatened species recovery back to health. The good news is only 1% of ESA listed species have gone extinct. But on the other hand, less than 3% of species have been delisted. The Trump administration modernized the Endangered Species Act to help streamline regulations and ensure successful species recovery with flexible tools that empower states, local governments, tribes, communities, and even private landowners to collaborate and implement effective recovery efforts. So I've got a few questions, uh, Mr. Cade and Mr. Smith, and I'd like to start a discussion about this. We've been, we've been proud as a Congressional Western Caucus to work with NISARC to to both urge improvements to the ESA and celebrate successes. So can you give our listeners a little background about your organization? Certainly. So NISARC is the country's oldest broad-based national organization dedicated solely to improving the ESA and its implementation. Uh, we were founded in 1991, so we're coming up on our 30-year anniversary. And our membership is diverse. It includes agricultural interests, cities and counties, conservationists, electric utilities, energy producers, farmers, forest and product companies, home builders, oil and gas companies, ranchers, realtors, water and irrigation districts, and many other businesses and individuals throughout the United States. Importantly, we represent real people. 
uh, private landowners, small businesses, and many others who care about the well-being of communities in the West and throughout the nation. So for the past 30 years, NISARC and its members have been committed to promoting effective and balanced legislative and administrative improvements to the Endangered Species Act that not only support the protection of fish, wildlife, and plant populations, but look at responsible land, water, and resource management. As the law has remained virtually unchanged since its last reauthorization way back in 1988, NISAR continues to focus on several longstanding key areas in need of improvement. Um, we look to promote and encourage pre-listing voluntary conservation efforts by creating new avenues for states, local governments, and private property owners to proactively work to protect species before the ESA is invoked. We also want to recognize and better integrate state and local governmental programs that often have a better handle on species and habitat on the ground than federal officials back in Washington, D.C. We also believe in leveraging modern data gathering and analytical tools that increase the accuracy and quality of science considered. Today's science and best practices for species conservation were not available when the statute was crafted back in 1973 or when it was last reauthorized in 1988. Next, we believe in addressing uncertainty and lack of predictability in listing determinations, in critical habitat designations, and in consultation processes under the law. If the federal government wants businesses and property owners to partner in species conservation and recovery activities, it is critical to establish trust. And finally, our members believe strongly in the need for improving the ESA's recovery planning process by requiring meaningful and enforceable delisting criteria, streamlining the downlisting and delisting processes, and ensuring that species can be removed from the list when recovery is achieved. Very good, very good, thank you. You know, um, between 2019 and 2020, I think there were at least five significant ESA regulations that were introduced uh, that provided the kind of flexibility that you're talking about. At the end of uh, this last October, Western Caucus members introduced bills to codify those actions. Uh, Jordan or Tyson, could you talk a little bit more about those changes and and maybe the benefits that they provided and, uh, and could provide, uh, should they be codified into, uh, into the future? Uh, yes, uh, the five rules promulgated by the previous administration made improvements to regulations that govern several key components of the Endangered Species Act. Uh, those were primarily the, the listing and delisting processes for species, the designation of critical habitat, and the Section 7 consultation process. Um, more specifically, the rules clarified the procedures and requirements for listing species as threatened, uh, for delisting or downlisting species, and for identifying, designating, and excluding occupied and unoccupied areas as critical habitat. The updates to the Section 7 consultation procedures sought to make what has become a time-consuming and cumbersome process more streamlined and efficient while continuing to protect listed species in critical habitat. And finally, in the, in the fifth rulemaking, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service revised how it protects threatened species, uh, and they did so to be consistent with the National Marine Fisheries Service, which is its sibling agency, 
uh, and to allow for protective measures to be better tailored to individual species and their circumstances. So looking at these collectively, uh, the revisions improved the clarity, transparency, and predictability of ESA implementation. In part, they reflect that the federal agencies and members of the regulated community have become more sophisticated in their approaches to the conservation of listed species and their habitats. The rules also addressed several areas where there had been some uncertainty, both in interpretation and implementation. And as, as you mentioned, in some cases, the revisions provided needed flexibility and incentives to landowners and the regulated community to collaborate and develop conservation measures and best management practices that can more efficiently and effectively conserve and recover ESA species. Good, thank you. Uh, recently, the Biden administration has made moves to change uh, these regulations and, and revert back to cumbersome rulemaking that doesn't allow for collaboration, uh, nor does would incentivize species recovery. Uh, can you guys describe some of those changes the Biden administration is making? I know some of that is a little more nuanced than just repealing the Trump administration's rules. Uh, yes, and, and as you mentioned, this administration has, has stated that they will revise or revoke the five ESA rules that we were just discussing. Uh, in fact, that effort started last week with the publication of two proposed rules that would remove the definition of habitat and also the procedures on how to consider whether to exclude areas from critical habitat. Um, these two rules were promulgated by the previous administration to address issues that the Supreme Court raised in its warehouser decision. Um, so after these two rules, uh, and these are likely to be early next year, we anticipate that there will be two additional proposed rules to address the revisions to the listing and delisting and critical habitat procedures and the Section 7 consultation regulations. Um, from where we sit right now, it, it doesn't appear that these proposed rules will be a straight repeal of the 2019 rules, but these will be more nuanced to address more specific changes. So. Some of the improvements may be retained, um, but likewise, some will, will most, most certainly be, be revised. And then finally, Fish and Wildlife Service anticipates reinstating uh, what's called the blanket 4D rule for threatened species, instead of continuing the current practice of identifying prohibitions and protective measures on a species-by-species -species basis. We know that partnerships between federal, state, local, and tribal entities often work better than top-down, one-size-fits-all regulations for species recovery. Can you talk a little bit more about some of those successes and, and how stringent regulations prevent those partnerships from taking place? This is such an important point, Mr. Chairman. The ESA success stories in the West and throughout the nation are directly connected to such partnerships, not only across the federal, state, and local governments, but with the business community and private landowners. And voluntary conservation has been at the heart of most of those species recovery. Voluntary conservation efforts should be promoted and encouraged by creating new avenues for states, local governments, and private property owners to proactively participate in species recovery efforts. However, with the exception of habitat conservation plans under Section 10 of the Act, the ESA contains no statutory provisions specifically devoted to voluntary conservation. Participants in such programs need assurances that they will be shielded from potential take liability 
for their activities and that additional conservation measures will not be imposed in the future. And uh, I'll turn it to Tyson to see if he's got other thoughts. Uh, well, yes, Jordan, um, you're absolutely correct that uh, regulatory uncertainty and lack of assurances is hindering voluntary conservation efforts towards listed species and their habitats. Uh, as I've learned through my, my practice, it, it's usually the landowner that has the greatest understanding of the species on their property and the measures that will effectively and efficiently conserve them. So promoting partnerships between landowners, the broader regulated community, state and local governments, tribes, and others provides an important opportunity to advance the meaningful conservation of species in their habitats. But as you mentioned, there needs to be incentives, i.e. regulatory assurances, uh, take authorization, other benefits, and so forth. And there also needs to be the flexibility to implement measures that will be effective for that particular species and or that particular area. Very good. Well, this, this has been a great discussion, and I want to thank both of you for your work on these complex issues that, that impact rural communities, not just across the Western United States, but across the whole country. Um, so with that, I'd like to offer you both an opportunity to express any closing thoughts you might like to leave with our listeners. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, as you're aware, the Endangered Species Act was enacted in 1973. Um, and at that time, uh, it was passed with strong bipartisan support. Uh, in the House, I think there were only four members who voted against the final agreement. Uh, in the Senate, it was adopted by unanimous consent, and it was ultimately signed into law by Republican President Richard Nixon. Uh, there was a common understanding at the time that the purpose of the Endangered Species Act was to protect and recover imperiled species and the ecosystems upon which they depend. We've also learned many lessons over the past 48 years, and we need to ensure that the ESA accommodates and encourages innovative and proactive efforts by state and local governments, by private landowners, by industry, and other stakeholders to recover species. NISARC believes that the ESA should recognize these new tools that have the ability to benefit species and incorporate common sense improvements based on these decades of implementation. A balanced approach to the Endangered Species Act is critically important, especially right now, as Congress and the administration continue to discuss proposals to address our nation's infrastructure and certainly the natural disasters that continue to impact many Western communities. We believe this balance is possible uh, and we appreciate the champions in Congress, such as yourself and many other members of the Western Caucus seeking to improve the act so I just want to thank you again for your leadership and for inviting us to join you today. Mr. Cade, any, any thoughts? No, oh, I think Jordan captured it perfectly. So I'd like to, to thank you again for inviting us on to participate. Very well. Well, thank you guys for not only taking uh, time to be on the show, but to talk about some issues that are can be very complex, but to do so in a way that can be easily understood. Great having both of you. And, and uh, I hope you will continue to let us know how we, as members of Congress, and certainly as members of the Congressional Western Caucus, can help amplify your efforts and truly make impactful change. That, that's what we want. We want to have positive improvements for those species that are endangered. So pleasure having you guys on today. Thank you Thank again. You. We appreciate it. All right. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. Earlier in the program, we had two experts from NISAR talking about the technicalities of the Trump and Biden administration's changes 
to the Endangered Species Act during their tenure. Now I'm joined by one of my friends and a freshman member of the Western Caucus, August Pfluger, who represents the 11th Congressional District in the great state of Texas. Welcome, August, and thank you very much for being on the show. Well, Chairman Newhouse, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show and talk about, obviously, a very important topic to my district, the 28,000 square miles that I represent of uh, most of the Permian Basin, which is just an enormous producer of oil and gas, 40% of our country's oil, and, uh, and also 15 million acres of farm and ranch land. So this is a great topic, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about it. I can't wait to get to your district and see some of this amazing stuff that you've got there. Awesome. With Representative Fluger today, we have a local guest, Mr. Stephen Robertson, who is, as I said, the Executive Vice President of the Permian Basin Petroleum Association. It's always great to have more local voices on the program. So, Stephen, thank you so much for taking time to be on this episode. Absolutely. Thank you, Chairman Newhouse and Representative Fluger for, for having us involved today. We're, we're so appreciative of the work that Representative Fluger has done for, for rural America, for our region specifically, and for the oil and gas industry. Um, in particular, thank you, Chairman Newhouse, for, for your support that you've been, your leadership in the Western Caucus, and in particular for supporting um, Congressman Fluger's recent natural gas tax resolution, and, and you're pushing back on the administration on trying to produce energy at home instead of relying on, on foreign actors to provide the energy we need for daily operations. As I mentioned earlier in the program, Western Caucus members have been very active in trying to reform the ESA, helping our local communities find better ways to partner with other entities to protect and recover species that, in, that impact agriculture and energy production within their respective communities across the country. Just recently, there was a package of bills introduced to codify much of what the Trump administration did in terms of providing regulatory flexibility. But that's, that's just a small chunk of the solutions our members have been putting forward. Congressman Fluger has really jumped in to serve as a leader in this space. August, I know you have a few bills to address the issues with the Endangered Species Act, of which I'm proud to co-sponsor with you. Could you explain the bills that you have, what they would do, and maybe some of the impacts that they could have? Well, absolutely. And uh, I echo what Stephen so eloquently said, you know, thank you for your leadership on these topics. They're, they're very important uh, for the, the safety, security, and, and also uh, not, not to mention the economic impacts of our country. So you know, I, I think um, talking about the Listing Reform Act, this is such a common sense approach that it's, uh, it's, it's almost shocking that we have to introduce something like this because, you know, what we've seen with a couple of, of endangered species that have been brought up, specifically the lesser prairie chicken uh, and, and the sage dune lizard that affect our area, is that you know the federal government is seeking, and I think the, the Biden administration right now is seeking to weaponize the Endangered Species Act towards different industries. And what this, what my piece of legislation would do, and, and uh, thank you for your support on it, um, is that it, it really just provides flexibility by ending arbitrary deadlines that are set forth in the ESA and, and to stop their role as a weapon and, and that forces the settlement of the federal government. And basically, it takes into account 
what the local community is saying allows for petitions. It allows for uh, flexibility with the secretary at the secretarial level um, to take into all these different factors, economic conservation ideas, the the actual impact of of what the either drilling or the agriculture or the different activities that are going on on private and public lands. And it, it seeks to understand in a common sense approach before making any decisions that would end those activities that quite frankly are absolutely imperative for our survival. And you're talking about food and you're talking about energy and those things, whether it's the food or the energy uh, in, in the case of our district are incredibly important to our way of life. And, and that doesn't even get into some of the national security implications. So we wanna stop the weaponization of the federal government of the Endangered Species Act. We wanna use a common sense approach. And we wanna make it easier for everyone, the stakeholders that are involved, landowners, conservationists, um, and, and producers, both agricultural and energy, to come together to talk about it and to find a good solution. That's really the bottom line. Yeah, unfortunately, many times it seems like we shouldn't have to legislate common sense, but that's that's what we end up trying to <laughs> You're do. Right. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Um, Stephen, tell, if you could, tell us a little bit more about the work that you do and, and how that work intersects with the Endangered Species Act, ESA. And maybe uh, if you could go into some of the roadblocks you face uh, due to stringent ESA regulations. Absolutely, Chairman. And, and we're so appreciative of the work that the Congressman Fluger is doing and, and the, the open ear that he has had to our industry and our region. Uh, the Permian Basin Petroleum Association is a, is a regional trade, which is a, a bit unique in our industry because we don't just represent interests in Texas, but we do across the Permian Basin. So we cover Texas and New Mexico. And it's it's a job that we've held as an association since 1961. And, and we, we take great pride in that because one of the things we've kind of evolved into being over the, over the decades is not just a voice for the oil and gas industry of this region, but for the entire region because so much of what we do out here revolves around that industry. Um, but it also revolves around other energy production industries. 40% of the wind energy produced in the state of Texas comes from West Texas, where the Permian Basin is. A large amount of solar energy production comes from our area. So when you're talking about possible endangered species listings, you're not just impacting the oil and gas industry, you're impacting the solar industry, you're impacting the, the wind industry, you're also impacting the ability to put in the transmission and distribution infrastructure, the electrical lines that need to be there to get the electricity that's generated from renewable energy out here to other places. Um, Texas has an incredible growing population, adding around 1,000 people a day last year. Um, that probably numbers are out of date even by this point. But with that growing population, you have to have energy production. But if you can't utilize the land that we're, we're blessed with to be able to do that and then transport that energy to where it's needed, then, then we have big problems, not just in providing economic um, growth and prosperity for our state, for our region, for the United States, but genuinely, if you look at the use of hydrocarbon energy throughout the, the world's history, and you see the growth of that use, it's almost tied directly with the drop in worldwide extreme poverty. We lift people, millions, if not billions of people out of extreme poverty by what we do in the Permian Basin. We're incredibly proud of that. And we're so thankful to have people fighting to make sure that we can keep doing that. But if, if folks like y'all don't keep that fight going, the detriments that we suffer make it very difficult to operate, in particular on federal lands in New Mexico, a um, little bit less so on some of the, the privately owned lands in Texas. But if 
species do get listed, then the private lands are just in detriment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I just spent the weekend up in northeast Pennsylvania where they're they're uh, developing the Marcellus natural gas, all that work that's going on there. And the impact, the positive impact to the local communities there, the economy there has just been uh, game-changing for that whole region of the state of Pennsylvania. August, I know you understand the impacts uh, an ESA listing can have on rural communities. Uh, in my home state, Washington, I've watched whole sectors of our economy literally be decimated by what I would say are misguided and unscientific listing decisions. In, in far too many cases, extreme environmentalists and many of those special interest groups actually, as Stephen was just alluding to, use the ESA as a weapon to slow or, or in some cases completely halt economic development and, and the critical infrastructure uh, projects that we depend on throughout rural America. I'm sure you've got a few examples from your district that, uh, as well. Could, could you uh, help our listeners understand what sort of impacts ESA listings have had on your local communities? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is where um, your leadership in the Western Caucus is so important because you, you just nailed it. There are Washington bureaucrats who have no idea what it takes to raise cattle, what it takes to produce energy. I, it doesn't matter if it's wind, solar, oil and gas, it doesn't matter. They have no idea what it takes to do that. And the other thing is that, you know, let's let's go out to West Texas. Um, I grew up in San Angelo and our family has been involved in, in ranching for seven generations, um, very familiar and been involved with the oil and gas industry as well. And in that part of the world, it's, it's important to have groups, organizations like PBPA on, on the bill that I just mentioned, we also have Texas Farm Bureau, we also have the cattle raisers. Their voice and their understanding of the detrimental effects, you know, when, when something is listed and when you can't produce, you either raise your livestock, produce the crops, produce energy, and, and Stephen said it, he, Stephen nailed it with, you know, talking about it's not just one type of energy, it's all the different types of energy, it's the transmission of that energy. When we can't do that because you have, um, you know, something listed, the very first cost is in dollars, and, and it's it's cost to the consumer, because it makes it more expensive to produce whatever it is, you know, whether it's a crop or whether it's livestock or energy, it makes it more expensive, and that cost is going to be passed down to the consumer. And so the second thing is that we're talking about the livelihoods of so many hardworking Americans that do jobs that most don't do. Less than 2% are in the agricultural business of our country, of 330 million, so you have 6 million or less that are in that, that industry, yet 330 million eat every single day. And that those 6 million are the ones that are, that are doing that, uh, that hard work. Um, and there's only about 10 million that are in the oil and gas industry and, and much less in, in the other energy sectors. And so, it just makes it more difficult for them to also raise their families, but also to help us raise ours uh, and those Americans that, uh, that don't. And, you know, I, I would go to um, any, any examples, whether it's the prairie chicken or the, the sage dune lizard that, um, you know, you, you work with these trade organizations, they can give you the real impacts. And if you wanna see conservation, and if the other side of the aisle is worried about conservation, please come to West Texas where water is a scarce commodity. And, and we leave the land better 
for the next generation. In every generation, it is left in a better state. And so when we're talking about conservation, not only are we lifting people out of poverty, a billion people over the last 10 years, but we're also leaving the land better for the next generation. Good point. Uh, I know a lot of our other members, our colleagues on the Western Caucus, face exactly the same kind of issues that you just talked about. Um, and, and we've got to continue advocating, making the point uh, for these these changes because we don't want our species not to recover. We, exactly the opposite. We want them to recover. We need we need to be better able to direct our resources to the species that need them the most with the goal of removing them from the list someday. I mean, that's that should be the goal, right? But it's really difficult to do that. Uh, as we've heard earlier on the program, these, these blanket rules and regulations uh, that are supposed to aim to keep species listed indefinitely are actually doing more harm than good. Uh, as Western Caucus members, we're, we're looking for ways to combat some of these rules and regulations that are coming out of this administration. But I'd, I'd really like to hear um, uh, what some of the discussions and some of the solutions that local leaders are, are looking at. So Stephen, could you give us a, a, an idea, uh, insight into what some of those cons conversations are? Uh, you being a leader in the oil and gas industry in Texas, and I know you guys struggle with this every single day. So could you let us look behind the curtain a little bit and, uh, and hear what you guys are talking about? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And, and um, Chairman Newhouse, I, I, I know that, that Congressman Fleur would join me in at any time that you'd like to come out to West Texas and, and see the great stretches of land and the, the opportunity that we have out here. We'd be more than happy to, to welcome you. Um, you know, one, of, one of the things that we are incredibly blessed by having in the Permian Basin is not just the natural resource that's under the ground, but the human resource that's above the ground. We couldn't do what we do in our industry without the experts, whether it's in agriculture, whether it's in oil and gas, whether it's in city planning, all of the different aspects that go into making our region what they are is because of the people. And in particular in the oil and gas industry, the large majority of those people are science-based people. We're talking about engineers and geologists and geophysicists. And so when they approach a problem, they approach it from a scientific standpoint. They look at facts, they look at science. And that is the exact types of people you want involved in trying to figure out what is the right course to move forward on a biological basis to preserve habitat and protect species. So we're fortunate that we've got that resource to rely on in developing the different conservation plans that we've been able to develop out here. Um, for, for a little bit over a decade, we've been involved in these fights. And, and originally, it was fighting to really get across the facts and the science. The, the lizard that the Representative Fluger talked about, the dune sagebrush lizard, the, the, one of the biggest fighting points that we had early on was trying to get people to understand that you can't say how many species should exist when there's never been a survey to say how many species did exist or how many of that species did exist. And so just trying to get base data to say, this is how many of these species we should find in this area. This is the habitat that they appreciate and they enjoy. These are the changes to their habitat that they could really utilize to grow and thrive are all things that we take into consideration. We've worked with local partners, we've worked with state partners in particular to help to develop um, conservation agreements that have even been lauded by the federal powers on uh, the, uh, the Department of Interior for being 
productive and progressive and being able to really accomplish the ends that they need to accomplish. We've had success at those. Obviously, rain is incredibly helpful in, a, in an arid region like ours in helping population, but we've seen population increase in a species like the lesser prairie chicken, yet we are still faced with a probable listing of that species under the Endangered Species Act as early as maybe May of next year. And so even though we are showing that local and state-led conservation efforts can make a positive impact, we still have to fight the political battle, battle to convince folks that when you say you want conservation, what that actually means is exactly what you're talking about, protection of a species and growth in population. But we're showing protection of a species and growth in population, yet we're being told by others, well, that's not really what we meant. We didn't mean growth in numbers, we meant growth in acreage. Well, we didn't mean growth in acreage, we meant growth in numbers. And there's always this moving goal line. And having local folks involved, having people that know the land involved, uh, really makes a huge difference in us being able to plead our case successfully on the merits of why local and state-led conservation efforts cannot just be successful, but should be the right way to go. Uh, that's uh, that's exactly why we're producing these podcasts, so that that kind of a message that you just uh, explained to us, Stephen, that other people can hear. I, I I want every member of Congress to hear what you just said, and this is this has truly been a, a great discussion. And I want to thank you both for your 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 hard work, your advocacy for rural communities like August's and like mine. Um, you're really taking on these important issues that uh, have a direct impact on those on those communities. So, so I want to thank you for that. I'd love to be able to give each of you a chance for any closing thoughts you might have that our listeners could uh, hang on to as as we finish up here. I'll go to you, August first. Any any thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Well, it has been a great discussion. I think it's important to understand the facts that you know, if we have a problem and it's identified and, and there's stakeholders and communities of interest that wanna to come together and solve that problem, then I think that's the right way to do it. And that's really what this legislation is all about. It's a common sense approach that you, you very, very eloquently said at the beginning of the conversation, which is we shouldn't have to legislate common sense. Unfortunately, even as a freshman, I'm seeing that, uh, that we do. And that's the point is that um, we, we are trying to, to leverage any and all stakeholders who have um, an issue and who want to, to make sure that we're doing the right thing it, by every category, but most importantly, that we're taking care of Americans, taking care of humans uh, and, and sustaining um, you know, our life while also caring for the planet and, and caring for uh, the land that, uh, that we've been so blessed to have. And so, you know, as uh, somebody who came from, who grew up on a ranch and understands just how important the land is. Uh, I think we're in a unique position to talk about this because uh, we do get it and we do understand it. So I just appreciate the opportunity to talk about this with uh, like-minded individuals who um, want to continue to see this country grow in strength uh, and also want to take care of those precious resources that we have. Absolutely, thank you. Stephen, I'll turn, up, turn over to you, any thoughts? Chairman Newhouse, thank you again for, for including me today. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to, to be able to talk to people about something that is that is near and dear to my heart, not just because it's it's what I do for a living, it's it's what I've grown up with. My my dad was in the oil and gas industry and it's something I've been around for, for a very long time. And I, I've seen the positive impact it has on people. Working in the oil and gas industry is truly 
the epitome of the American dream, where anybody, no matter the background you come from, no matter the education you have, no matter the, the help up you've had before or the push down you've had before, you can make a success of yourself with your will and your hard work. And there's not a lot of other um, industries out there that can say that. And not only do we do that, we do it and provide the world a better quality of life. Um, we provide a better path forward and we do it in the United States and in particular in the Permian Basin better, more efficiently, more effectively, and more environmentally sensitive than anybody around the world. And so if we want a cleaner tomorrow for, for, our, for our grandchildren and for our children, then energy development in the Permian Basin is essential. But using tools like the ESA as a weapon instead of a shield can greatly limit the potential of our country. Um, and I don't want to see that happen. So I'm, I'm so thankful that, that we have people like yourself, Chairman and, and Representative Fluger, fighting for us in um, Washington, D.C., fighting for rural America, who really is what makes America great. Um, and I'm, I'm just so appreciative to be part of this and am happy to help in any way that we can to help spread that message. Great. Well, I just want to say thank you to our listeners for sure for tuning in. And thanks to all our guests. You guys have really made some awesome points. And so thank you for joining me today and helping to amplify the local species conservation efforts that you know, helping to highlight successfully recovered species and also exposing truly desperately needed reforms to the Endangered Species Act. So thank you all very much. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Uh, thank you for, for joining us. Thanks, Chairman. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you both and best of luck over there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>